Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Last time on Frightful, we headed back to Chicago where, in the early 1980s, a string of dead women were being found scattered across the city, beaten, assaulted, mutilated, and savagely killed. Chicago police were struggling to find a lead until one of the victims managed to survive. And I've got to warn you that this case contains details of murder and sexual violence that may be simply too upsetting for some. That would be a totally reasonable response to this. But if you want to hear how these killings were brought to an end, listen on. But bear in mind, it gets a whole lot darker before the light eventually comes. I'm Peter Laws, and this is the terrifying story of the Chicago Ripper Crew. The police now had a lead, and so officers were on the lookout for a red van with blacked-out windows. And they saw one on October 20, 1982, Possible GTA suspect there now, 4730 Crystal Springs Drive in the parking lot above the merry-go-round. Get a hailing, identify. Incident 3191. But the driver did not match Beverly's description. For a start, he had red hair, not brown. Yet the van description was indeed a perfect fit. And so the police questioned the driver, and he said his name was Eddie Spritzer. The van wasn't actually his, it belonged to his boss, Robin get. So, the officers told Eddie to head out to Get's house, and they followed him. And the police told Eddie to call his boss to come outside, and they hung back to watch. And as soon as Get came out, the police knew it. This man fitted Beverly's description perfectly. He was even wearing the same clothes she described, a plaid shirt and square-toed boots. So the police approached him and started asking questions, and he said he knew nothing about the abduction of Beverly Washington. And the way he spoke sounded convincing, in the sense that he showed no worry or emotion at being questioned by the police. Instead, he seemed very eager to help. Yet still, they took him in and Spritzer to the station and got mugshots. The officers called to see Beverly next, taking a selection of mugshots with them. And Beverly picked out Robin Gett straight away. That is the man, she said. There was no doubt about it. And so the police returned to interrogate Gett and Spritzer. By now, Gett had secured a lawyer, and he seemed weirdly unfazed by the whole experience. But the police therefore saw more potential in Spritzer, who had become a nervous wreck, and they probed him but he would not talk, and it quickly became apparent why. Spritzer was absolutely terrified of Get. They kept pressing, and eventually, Spritzer started talking. And his story would sometimes change along the way, 
but all of the things he said were like something from a horror movie. Spreitzer told police that in May 1981, he was living near the Brer Rabbit Hotel and working in Winchell's donut shop. While he was at work, he met Robin Gett, who came in for donuts, usually around midnight. One night, Spreitzer's car wouldn't start and his supervisor wasn't able to give him a lift. And so Spreitzer spotted Gett in the area and asked if he might have a ride into Chicago. Gett agreed. And they'd been riding together in Gett's van when they decided to, quote, pick up some whores. And they reached the corner of Broadway and Addison and Gett stepped out of the van and took Spreitzer to the back of the van. And he told Spreitzer to get inside while he found a prostitute for them. And he told Spreitzer that he had to wait for a signal of two knocks. And only then could he come out so they could, quote, take care of the whore, whatever that meant. Get assumed Spreitzer that he wouldn't get into trouble. And so Spreitzer did as he was told. He got into the back of the van. He didn't protest either. And eventually he heard voices. Get was talking to a woman outside. And Spreitzer said he could tell that she was an African-American woman from her accent. And he watched her get into the front of the van. And he saw Get hand her some pills, which she took. They then drove for 30 minutes, while Spreitzer, still confused, sat at the back of the van, waiting. Until the van rolled to a stop, and then he heard that signal. Gets heavy knuckle rapping twice on the side of the van. Spreitzer did as instructed and got out of the van at that point and went round to the passenger door. Get was standing there with a pair of handcuffs and a knife. Spreitzer saw the woman and would later identify her photograph for the police. This was Linda Sutton, the first known victim. Get dragged Linda out of the van and put handcuffs on her wrists, and then he took her into a bushy, wooded area near to the van. Spreitzer waited in the bushes for five minutes before hearing Sutton moaning. And she said, What are you doing to me? Why are you doing this? And then he heard Get whistle to call Spritzer over. Spritzer says that when he went to the bushes where Sutton was, he saw that Get had already severed one of Linda's breasts, and that he was, quote, having sex with the gaping wound on her chest where the breast had been. Get then demanded Spritzer to go to the van to get some wire, which he did. And then Get used that wire to sever Sutton's right breast. He then told Spreitzer to do the same thing, to place his penis into the wound. And Spreitzer said he did, and he left it there for about five minutes. After he was done, Ged picked up the wire and the two severed breasts, and they left Linda lying there in the dirt. Ged dropped Spreitzer off at his mother's house. Spreitzer would sometimes change his story, so at one point he gave a slightly different version of events. He said that another man called Andrew Cocorelius had been present that night too. And he said that they had taken Linda Sutton to a hotel room, the rare rabbit, I guess, where they all sexually assaulted her, including using a Coke bottle. And then he said they took her from the motel and killed her in the wooded areas in the fashion that we've just heard. Either way, both versions of these events were absolutely repellent. 
Spreitzer started talking about other crimes he knew of too, like how Get had once shot a woman in the head, and how he pulverized another woman's head with a hammer. Spreitzer also told the police about the third victim, Lorraine Borowski, the secretary who went missing on her way to her real estate job. Spreitzer testified that in mid-May, he and Get went out in the van looking for a girl, but they couldn't find one, so they stopped to eat and have some beer. Spreitzer said he fell asleep in the back of the van and woke up at 7 a.m. And when he woke, he noticed that the van was parked in a cemetery, and he could also hear noises of pain and struggle. He says when he looked out of the van, he saw Get near a tombstone, and he was stabbing a white woman with a knife. Five minutes later, Get returned to the van holding the knife and a severed breast. This was Lorraine Borowski. Spreitzer also talked about the murder of Sandra Delaware on August 27, 1982. On that occasion, Get picked up a prostitute and forced her to have conventional sex with her while she performed oral sex on Spreitzer. And Get had asked Spreitzer if he was having fun, and Spreitzer said, No. Get said, what are you going to do about it? And then he stabbed the woman twice in the chest. Spreitzer said he felt sick and ran to the van. Spreitzer even claimed that there were other victims that had not been found by police, like a woman who he said Get had blindfolded and gagged and then shot point blank in the head. He added that Get had put chains around her neck and legs and attached two bowling balls to her body and threw her in the water which explains why she was never found. The police were utterly appalled at this testimony, but tried to remain calm as they pressed him further. Spreitzer had been influenced for sure, but he had not said no. He admitted that he had also mutilated women, but he insisted that Get hold him, he had to, and that he was terrified of that man. After the confession, the police now had a 78-page statement on seven different murders, so they took these details in for another bash at Get. But despite being shown a series of graphic crime scene photographs, Get just wasn't bothered and said he didn't know anything about these crimes. And so the police tried a different tactic, one that would backfire. They decided the key to make Get talk was to make him nervous or desperate. Maybe that would break his steely resolve and force him to talk. And they thought the best way would be to show him how Spreitzer was talking so much to the police in another room. So they took Get to a part of the station which was near to where Spreitzer was speaking to officers. They thought Get would see this confession and panic. It backfired. You see, Spreitzer caught sight of Get watching him and he froze in fear and he stopped speaking to the police after that. And it was worse. This is when Spreitzer started to change his story. He began to say that Ged had not killed anybody. Instead, the true killer was this man, Andrew Cogarelius, who was a brother of Ged's girlfriend. Was this new name that kept coming up just a random stalling tactic by Spreitzer? Well, the police thought they'd better check it out, so they went to see Cogarelius and brought him into the station. And when they sat him down... They were amazed at how much he said, because the details he offered were sickening. He admitted that, yes, he had also joined these two men and snatched women from the streets and raped them with the others. 
and he also said that he had mutilated the victims not only with knives, but sometimes that the crew had used razor blades, can openers, and even the sharp-edged lid of a tin can. He was open about the breasts too, saying that they had used piano wire to wrap around the flesh and pull tight until they were able to tear them away. Cucurelius admitted to masturbating into the open wounds afterwards. He talked about what they did to Sandra Delaware too, saying that they had stuffed a rock into her mouth to stop her screaming. He'd also shoved a wine bottle into her, which had caused injuries that the autopsy report confirmed. After this disgusting confession, the police had linked him with the deaths of 18 different women, including the marketing executive Rose Beck Davis and the real estate secretary, Lorraine Borowski. The police were understandably shocked to discover that there had not been only one killer or two, but actually three. Yet this got even worse when they were interviewing the family and friends of Andrew Cocorelius. Because when they spoke to his brother, Tommy Cocorelius, they became deeply concerned with some of his answers. When they dug deeper, they realized that this was the fourth and final member of the Ripper crew. And as if this entire case was not dark enough, Tommy told the police some details that somehow managed to make these crimes even more horrifying. Do yourself a favor this summer and check out Every Plate, because you'll get more bang for your bite with America's Best Value Meal Kit. Yes, you might think getting pre-portioned ingredients and tasty recipes delivered right to your door would be the pricey option, but it's not. Every plate is 25% cheaper than getting groceries from the store. And don't worry, there are no hidden fees, just great value, delicious meals on your doorstep week after week. Every plate is fully customizable, so you have options to swap out proteins and sides, or you can add on protein and veggie dishes. It's your choice. And you'll never get into a cooking rut because there are 26 fabulous and affordable meals on the menu. And they change every week, from 15-minute dinners and oven-free recipes, or lunches, snacks, and desserts. Do you want some sides? Choose from up to 22 of them. Every Plate is helping more and more Americans eat well for less. So if you want to join them, then listen up to this special offer. Get $1.49 per meal by going to everyplate.com forward slash podcast and entering code 49FRIGHTFUL. That's $1.49 per meal by going to everyplate.com forward slash podcast and entering code 49FRIGHTFUL. That is up to $110 value. I'd crawl on my hands and knees to get that. Tommy admitted that this gang of four killers had been obsessed with Satanism, or at least a stereotypical version of it. Pop culture demonism was big during the 1980s, which led to the so-called satanic panic. But despite the worries of conservative Christians and others, most young people were just enjoying harmless heavy metal or fun horror movies or simply role-playing games. Yet these four men wanted to fuse Satanism into their violent sexual compulsions. And so they had added ritualistic elements to this murder spree. So when they removed flesh and parts from their victims, they would take them back to the attic 
of Robin Gett's house, and it was here that it was said that Gett had set up an altar draped in red cloth, and that there were supposedly six red and black crosses daubed on the walls. During these rituals, Gett would use the severed breasts as ritualistic elements. He would read passages from the Satanic Bible by Anton LaVey, while the men kneeled in a circle, masturbating into the severed breasts. They would even chop up chunks of these breasts and hand them out to the others, and they were told to eat them. It was a demented inversion of Holy Communion. This all happened when Get's wife had gone to work in the evenings. When officers asked Tommy what drove him to do such acts, he said it was fear. Get, he said, had frightening and powerful supernatural powers. And they felt that if they all refused to take part in these rituals, Ged had the ability to unleash evil forces onto them. Indeed, after speaking to many friends and colleagues, the police were told from multiple people that Ged had a strange sort of power over people, where he could make them do whatever he wanted. One of them even told the detectives that they must never look Ged in the eyes, otherwise they would wind up doing his bidding too, no matter how violent and shocking the demands. After interviewing his friends and acquaintances, investigators started to piece the history and psychology of Get together. For example, his obsessive fetish for women's breasts. Girls he knew told police that he had asked them if they would stick pins into their breasts for him. He'd even asked some women to cut off their nipples for him. Get was actually married with three children, and it was alleged that he had forced his wife Rosemary to do the same, to stick pins into her breasts, and this involved her getting infected wounds on her chest, yet she never called the cops on him. When he was quizzed by investigators, Get admitted that he had been obsessed with breasts his entire life, and that it was something that ran in his family. He said that every single male member of his family, all the way up to his great-grandfather, had married a woman with large breasts. His own wife, Rosemary, apparently had the same. For a man to be attracted to women's breasts is hardly news. But there was something way more twisted and involved with Get. He had a fascination not only with the breasts themselves, but what was inside them and underneath them. The four men were eventually held in Pontiac Correctional Center on a $1 million bond. And Get was the only one who denied any wrongdoing. In court, Get took the stand to defend himself, insisting that he was innocent of rape and murder, despite there being compelling witness testimony of women who said he'd wanted to mutilate their breasts. There was no physical evidence to link him to any of these murder crimes and the other three refused to testify against him because they feared his power. Still, though, the jury found Get guilty of attempted murder, rape, deviant sexual assault, armed violence, and aggravated battery. And his sentence was 120 years. He should go on parole in 2042. While in prison, Get wrote letters contesting a claim that you'll find on the internet and on some true crime channels that Get used to work for the notorious Chicago clown killer, John Wayne Gacy, who's much better known. 
Get insisted that this was not true and that it was just an internet rumor. But still, if you ever do read about this case online, you'll often see this gay ceiling shared as if it's fact. Tommy Cocorelius was sentenced to 70 years in prison, but because he cooperated with police, other charges were dismissed. It meant that he was actually released from prison on March the 29th, 2019. And as of 2019, he lives in the Wayside Cross Ministries in Aurora, Illinois, and has been interviewed by local news where he said, Everybody thinks I'm a monster. I'm not a monster. He said he was striving to be a better person. Tommy's brother, Andrew Cogarelius, who had, among other things, confessed to beating Rose Beck Davis to death with a hatchet, was sentenced to be executed on March 16th, 17th, 1999. And as he was strapped into a gurney, he apologized to the family of Lorraine Borowski and said that heaven was close for him. He died by lethal injection at 12.34 p.m. Finally, Eddie Spritzer had pleaded guilty to the murders of Rose Davis, Sandra Delaware, Shuey Mack, and a drug dealer called Rafael Torado. He was given a life sentence for each victim, plus extra time for rape and sexual assault. His defense presented him as a timid young man who had often been bullied. He had also developed a phobia of blood since the crimes. But attempts at sympathy didn't work, especially when the Chicago Tribune reported that he had bragged about his crimes, and he was sentenced to death. And yet... There was a change in policy in January 2003 when Governor George Ryan commuted all death penalties. It meant that Edward Spritzer, who had raped, murdered, and mutilated multiple women, was spared. The families were outraged. Still, despite the long string of victims, the police finally had managed to stop the horrendous crimes. On January 6, 1984, the two detectives who solved these murders were honored by the Attorney General, Mayor and Superintendent in Chicago. Detectives Thomas Flynn and Philip Murphy had been partners for over 20 years and they received a special plaque for solving the Ripper Crew murders. It would be the case that defined their careers. Though, in a surprising and grim twist, one of the detectives would reveal a darkness of his own. You see... Detective Philip Murphy was a violent man himself. His daughter openly admitted this on various media interviews. Susan Murphy Milano ended up working as a non-fiction author and violence expert defending victims' rights. And she spoke about how her father, the great detective who helped solve the Ripper case, brought, quote, terror and violence into our home on a regular basis. Indeed, in 1989... He shot his ex-wife dead, Susan's mother, before turning the gun on himself. And this wasn't just a flash-in-the-pan killing either. Apparently, the detective had plotted her killing for over six months. He'd shot her at close range. The horrendous case of the Ripper crew isn't as well-known as you might think, but I find it to be a seriously distressing one. I've got to admit that I found researching this case to be a draining and disturbing experience. Yet as I read through the court transcripts and blog posts and vintage news reports on it, I've been taken aback by some of the more recent comments about it. Because despite the horrendous and insane cruelty that these men inflicted on all these women, the killers seem to hold a fascination for some. When researching this case, I found a Facebook post, for example, of someone who is selling hand-drawn cartoons by Robin Gett. 
People seem keen to buy and own a piece of art by the same hand that had brutalized all of these women. The picture was of a man driving a motorcycle while sucking the brain out of a severed head. They also found a Reddit user called Real Morales 19 who claims to have received a signed Christmas card from Robin Gert. Someone asked, Oh, was he a family acquaintance? And Rio Morales 19 replied no and just said, No, this was a purchase from a buddy of mine. This case is truly chilling, not only because of the extreme nature of the crimes, but what really stands out to me as well is the sheer rarity of the scenario. To have one single person carrying out cruel and debauched murders is rare in itself. To find two people who might agree to do such things together is rarer still. The fact that there were four different men working together to carry out this carnage is incredibly rare, but it is no less terrifying because of that rarity. I started this case discussing how the Yorkshire Ripper in the UK was finally caught and sentenced and how Britons figured it was over. But then on that very same day it was announced in papers, the Ripper crew began their reign of murder in Chicago. And when they were finally put into prison and people thought perhaps the darkness had ended, the policeman who solved the Ripper case also abused and then murdered a woman. Call it toxic masculinity, call it evil contagion, call it the sad reality of life. For me, I can't help but think of the Greek myth of the Hydra, a multi-headed beast when if you chop off one of its heads, two grow back in its place. And the thought of what it must have felt like to have been cornered by multiple men with a feverish desire for murder, molestation and mutilation, well they're the kind of thoughts that might just give you nightmares. Which is why I am done with this case. And frankly, it's time for me to stop thinking about it. I'm Peter Laws, and you've been listening to Frightful, the horrifying spree of the Chicago Ripper Crew. Well, thank you for listening to a particularly harrowing couple of episodes. Uh, thank you for sticking with it. And um, uh, can I encourage you, if you'd like to support the show, because it takes a lot of work, obviously, to put things together, um, then I do have a Patreon. And on that Patreon, not only can you just sign up for $5 a month and you could cancel at any time, it gets you access to um, a whole bunch of extras, including ad-free episodes. So um, not only of that, actually, but also of my other podcast, A Curious Past. So... Do check that out um, or find me at peterlaws.co.uk where you can find out more about my books and um, my other work. Thank you for listening. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. 
Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra low net carb goodies like rich flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today.